Welcome back to The Shelf Oddities. My name is Erie. And I'm Serafina. And Erie, what oddity are you feeling like today? Uh, the oddity I'm feeling like today is a spider in a jar preserved. She's looking beautiful, but she's fucking tired. <laughs> what oddity that, are you feeling like today? That checks out for you. Um, I am definitely feeling like, you know those old amber medicine bottles that have like the glass embossing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's how I'm feeling today. That's fair. Just like kind of shiny, kind of dirty, you know? <laughs> Just like a little dusty. Oh, she vintage. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, welcome to December. It is officially the dark days. The dark. How was your Thanksgiving? It was good. It was good. I got to eat a lot of food. Saw what was a lot the best thing you ate? So I am that person who likes the um, marshmallow yams, where it's mm. like yams with the marshmallow yeah, on top. Yeah, yeah. I love a good toasty melty sweet potato casserole. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Yep. Same, same jam. Love the fuck out of that. It's so good. That tracks. I had that as well, but without the marshmallows. Not as good. I know. I like a toasty marshmallow, but like not at dinner time. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, you live your life, I live mine. But, like, we didn't have, we had it with, like, a very crunchy layer of pecans on top. Okay, I, I can get down on that. It was really good. But Sounds it just good. was, like, it was pie. It was a sweet potato yeah. pie. I don't know why anyone's pretending like it's... Anything other than that. A side dish. It's like, <laughs> baby, that's dessert mid-meal, which is fine, and live your life. Yeah. Um, I love turkey, and I know that it's so, for some reason, it's so fucking controversial. I think it's because most people don't know how to cook a bird. I agree with that. Um. But I love turkey. I love it so much. And I had two very good turkeys this year, and I was very happy about it. The first day, we went to our bigger event, and I didn't get as much turkey as I needed. And I Bummer. I went to my second event, and I was like, please tell me you have a lot of turkey. And they're like, I mean, yeah, it's a big bird. And I'm like, I want it all, please. <laughs> um, so that was great. I will say... Being a kid of divorce, mm-hmm. going to Thanksgiving, so many fucking Thanksgivings all over the fucking place, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. This year, as, as every year I get older, it gets easier in the sense of, like, I'm way more for, firm with my boundaries of, like, I'll be there then. We'll leave it this time. Like, I'm not yeah. going to overexert myself. I genuinely realized this year, like, how lucky I am to have a partner that, like, makes life way easier mm-hmm. um, and, like, a joyful experience because when you're an only child, uh, being separated between multiple homes where there are other children but I was older than all of them Mm -hmm. uh, during that point it's really easy to feel alone during those times because like I'm the the traveler right you know and being by myself um but having a partner that like one everyone loves because he's just like the kindest person in the entire world and like everyone's like you really got the best husband I'm like I know (laughs) I know I (laughs) did that's the point that was the whole point I we got home and we were laying in bed and I was like my high standards worked out for me so well. <laughs> like, it just, they worked out for me so well. Like, truly having a friend and partner that gets to go with you to these events just makes life so much easier. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm thankful for this year. That's fair. I'm thankful for, I got to go to a Friendsgiving um, with my new friends that I play uh, Vampire LARP with. Mm. And it was very fun. I made them funeral potatoes, which were oh, yeah. a hit. Oh, Everyone was obsessed with them. How was your dump cake? The dump cake, also good. I made a peach yeah. dump cake. Super good. Very successful. But it was super nice because I have said this before, but I fucking hate the holidays. So anytime I can do something that doesn't feel like a holiday, yeah. but you're still with people, it feels nice. A new holiday, kind yeah. of. I do like that Friendsgivings are like way more pronounced mm-hmm. this year not this year i mean they've been pretty popular for i'd say like the last five years it's maybe like more socially six. acceptable it's way more yeah. socially acceptable and i 
not to immediately bring it down. Immediately. I do this every time. I'm, my grandmother does this where she, we call her the bad news bears where <laughs> you won't, you won't talk to her for like three months. And the first time you walk in her house, she's like, did you hear uncle so-and-so died? And you're like, I just got here. So sorry. But I saw someone talk about on TikTok, like how we all, everyone in our generation go like, oh yeah, well my parents weren't the best. And like, everyone's like, oh yeah, I get it. Like, yeah. it's very much our generation that has these friendsgivings mm-hmm. because we don't have a family structure. Like yep. so many of us in in our generation and younger, it's just so socially acceptable. So I'm glad that you got to go to that mm-hmm. and have fun and hopefully that becomes a tradition for you, even if it's not with those people, but yeah. just having friends. And like I said, every year as an adult, these holidays get better for me because I get to put in what I want and I get to do what I want and... I'm really happy that it was such a good time for you. Hell yeah. Because. You too, buddy. I was worried about you. <laughs> no, I wasn't worried about you. I'm never worried about you. You're like the most self-sufficient person I know. But I was like, I hope she's having a good time. I know she doesn't <laughs> like these days. Like, I just, you were in my heart the whole time. I, and I was appreciate like, it. I appreciate the concern. No, I had a good time. It was, it was a good time. Good. I am happy to hear that. Um, I haven't been having a good time. So let's talk about that. Let's get into today's topic. Let's jump right in because... It's been fucking rough, my guy, let me tell you. Okay, so this episode this week, uh, we are talking about processes of the body, and since some are squeamish about those things, I figured I'd take time this episode for multiple topics, just because if you're not a body process kind of person, this ain't the episode for you. We enjoy the six minutes you've spent with us so far, Um, but if you need to go, I completely understand because some people just aren't in the medical game, and I get that. Um, But if you are and you don't mind these topics, I figured let's just get them both out the way. They kind of relate to each other in a way. Um, These last two weeks, uh, I took my rock collection to new heights, and uh, I was plagued by a kidney stone, and yes, I did jump on that joke before Erie could, because between her and my spouse, it's all I've been hearing since it happened. <laughs> oh, Serafina loves rocks and minerals so much that she had to add to her own collection. Honestly, it's pretty funny. Um, what did you call me the other day? A rock factory? Oh, yeah, your rock yeah, factory. Yeah, it's my rock factory. I love that for me. So while I've been mining away this whole time, I did some research. And what I found was troubling and kind of confusing. Um, as one would, my first question was, well, what causes kidney stones? The most basic answer is that they form when your urine contains more crystal-forming substances, such as calcium, oxalate, and uric acid, uh, than the fluid in your urine can dilate. So at the same time, your urine may lack substances that prevent crystals from sticking together, creating an ideal environment for kidney storms to form. So like basically, it's a chemical imbalance in your kidneys. Which I already got one in my brain. I didn't need to. Oh, sorry. Um, so what causes that to happen? And like, what did I do as the soul that drives this mech suit? My dear oddlings, the answer is everything. It's so confusing. I found an article uh, that says you eat too healthy. And then I found another article that says you're eating too junky. I found a study that was too much water. And then I found another study that was not enough water. It's really just... It's just too confusing. Too many vitamins, too little vitamins. What color shirt you're... No, I'm just kidding. Um, 
But when you're laying in a hospital bed going, how can I make sure this never happens again? Because my dear oddlings, let me tell you, I have never in my life experienced pain like this. I do have PCOS and endometriosis for those of you who don't know, which causes period cycles that have landed me in the hospital more times than I can count. This was nothing like that. This was 10 times worse. This was 100 times worse. This was, I can't breathe. My lungs don't work. I am throwing up because that's the only way our bodies know how to get these things out of us. It was terrible. I was just a ghost of the green witch before you today. And I'm only a week out from it. Actually, at this point, I'm almost two weeks out from it. And I'm still dealing with it. My poor man had to sit and watch me do what he called crawling on the ceiling because I was giving Linda Blair a run for her money. It was not a fun time at all. I am grateful that I was surrounded by people who wanted to help me. My neighbors let the dogs out for me because it was so bad when I woke up that morning. We went to the hospital as soon as we were awake enough to drive. And I was in such bad shape that I was triaged into a room ASAP. Was it embarrassing throwing up in the waiting room of an ER? No, because I was in so much pain. I'm sure it didn't matter. Other people didn't exist to me. I'm telling you, I called it transformative pain. I felt like I was in a different universe. Like it, nothing else existed. Time stopped. The world stopped rotating. It was, it was so bad. I am thankful that we took hospital distance into consideration when buying our home because if I would have been any delay on any kind of thing, like it just. The ramping up was insane. I've never, never experienced anything like that. So after being triaged and finally getting some pain medication and getting a couple scans, it came to light that I had a two millimeter stone blocking the tube that connects your kidneys to your bladder. Two millimeter is so small. Uh, When I looked up, like, because I was like, I need some perspective. Like, how much is two millimeter? And I'm in a hospital bed. It's like I have a ruler on me. It's the same width as a tip of a freshly out-of-the-carton crayon. Oh. That's, like, how small it is. It's not as small as maybe one would think, but it's, like, it's that small. And, like, this thing, like, almost ended me. Mm -hmm. Like, I was taken down by the tip of a crayon. Not really, but that's how I felt. I'm just, I felt so weak. That little asshole caused me a world of hurt, and it's still doing that to this day. It's bothering the hell out of me. And apparently, I learned, it can take up a month to pass. In the hospital, they're like, you'll probably pass it this weekend. You'll be fine. Bit, bitch. It's been almost two weeks. I'm still dealing with it. And now it's different because there's like phases. And luckily I'm past the the really uh, hurtful phase. But now I'm like, can I be done? I'm tired. I don't want to do this. Is it just like cooking in there? Yeah, basically. Like it just has to wait. Like there's like, it just is like a thing of gravity and timing and like all of this. Because it's not like it's in a scenario where like our bodies are meant to like push things out of there. So it's like. You just gotta wait till it lines up and you're good and like yeah it's awful. It's like putting it's like a game where you're putting the shape in the the right hole. Yes, except for this hole is made out of calcium and it's sharp. Yeah, not the hole, the the, the stone. Yeah, yeah. It just it's scary to think about. It is. Like I just have like a tiny two millimeter ninja star rolling around in my body. Pointing your insides. Yeah, it's not fun. Um, so. It is crazy having chronic illnesses because I can tell you every holiday season, my body goes into panic mode and causes something to go wrong. 
uh, I'll basically be dealing with this for the entire holiday season. It's like the holidays come around and you know how like some people put up lights and decorations for their holidays. The lights for me on holiday holiday seasons is like if every light on the car of your dashboard lit up all at one time. (laughs) Check engine. Check engine. Check fluid. ABS is off. It's all. (laughs) Yeah, it's bad. Um, And this time it was just a kidney stone. And because I care about y'all enough, I figured I'd share Harvard's top five ways to make sure you don't get a kidney stone. Number one, drink plenty of water. Thank you, Harvard. We really appreciate that. Uh, Drinking extra water dilutes the substances in urine that leads to stones. Strive to drink enough fluids to pass two liters of urine a day, which is roughly eight standard eight-ounce cups. It may help to include some citrus beverages like lemonade and orange juice. The citra in these beverages helps block stone formation. The second is to eat calcium-rich food. Dietary calcium binds to oxalate in your intestines and thereby decreases the amount of oxalate that gets absorbed into the bloodstream and then excreted by the kidney. Mm, I didn't know that about calcium. I didn't I eat a calcium chew every day, but just because my girlfriend gets a bunch of these really gross ones that she hates, so she offloads them on me, so now I eat one every day. Wow, and your kidneys, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Number three is reduced sodium. A high-sodium diet can trigger kidney stones because it increases the amount of calcium in your urine. Dude, I am so fucked. Do you know how Uh, much salt I... Like, I I make myself popcorn with my air popper. But you take a calcium supplement, so you're probably fine. That's going to carry me to victory. You're right. It's it's a balancing act. (laughs) Um, Current guidelines suggest limiting total daily sodium intake to 2,300 milligrams. If sodium has contributed to kidney stones in the past, try to reduce your daily intake to 1,500. This will also be good for your blood pressure and heart. So, you know, watch it with your popcorn there, sister. <laughs> uh, yeah, I already have heart problems, so... Hey. Hey. Uh, number four is limit animal protein. Eating too much animal protein, such as red meat, poultry, eggs, and seafood, boosts the level of uric acid and can lead to kidney stones. A high-protein diet also reduces levels of urinary citrate, the chemical in urine that helps prevent stones from forming. If you're prone to stones, limit your daily meat intake to a quantity that's no bigger than a pack of playing cards. This is also a heart-healthy portion. So do your heart and kidney, like, they're just very similar to, like... Same vibe. Same vibe. They just like the same stuff, I guess. Hmm. I don't want to go on a tangent right in the middle of these steps. But I've been thinking a lot about why was the heart the thing that, like, we use as, like, for love? Like, we're going to have to do an episode. Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day episode, baby. We're because, for you. Because I want to know. I think about that all the time where I'm like, we don't say our soul or our brain as, like, our heart. But, like, my heart doesn't feel emotion. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what is that about? I don't Anyway, we'll find out. Valentine's Day. Um, and the last one, number five. This one, I think, is truly the most interesting one. You want to avoid stone-forming foods. Beets, chocolate, spinach, rhubarb, tea, and most nuts are rich in oxalate, which can contribute to kidney stones. If you suffer from stones, your doctor may advise you to avoid these foods or consume them in smaller amounts. That's such a specific list. It's so specific. I mean, it's just crazy. Uh, Since I've had these kidney stones and people have asked me about it they're like oh do you drink a lot of tea and i'm like does everyone just know yeah. that if you drink a lot of tea you get I've kidney stones i've never heard that me neither isn't that so interesting but also like how are you gonna tell me to not eat spinach like 
our whole lives were like spinach eat better now spinach can kill you with kidney stone like what that's what i'm saying like some of this information is so i don't know it's just so crazy to me and like for everyone else particular foods and drinks are unlikely to trigger kidney stones unless consumed in extremely high amounts some studies had shown that people who take high doses of vitamin C in the form of supplements are also higher risk for kidney stones. So that is probably because the body converts the vitamin C into oxalate. So then you're right back at where you started. But definitely something interesting to think about and, you know, be, be careful, <laughs> I guess. So take all of that into consideration. I drink water like it's going out of style. I only drink tea occasionally when it's cold, and it just got cold. I mean, we did have that super late frost. I've had maybe two glasses of tea since it got below 30 degrees, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not out here drinking tea like anything crazy. I don't feel like I eat an insane amount of meat or beets or spinach or chocolate even. So take it with a grain of salt, literally. And I do like salt, as we have already said. Uh, So maybe that's the case. I do eat limes like they're oranges. Not that this is the Diagnose Serafina podcast or that I'm rebuking anything the Harvard scientists have to say, but I figured sharing that I'm great at some of these things and terrible at others might help you not have medical anxiety because sometimes I know when I listen to people talk about their medical stuff I get a little paranoid and don't be paranoid about kidney stones this is my first one and hopefully my last but it was treatable and I had warning signs for like a week I had this weird rib pain every other day and I kind of just let it go through its motions without thinking oh this could be something to look into Um, but that's just life with a chronic illness though it's like oh what a fun new symptom I'm dealing with I also feel like that happens a lot when you're a woman yeah you like have these weird pains the primordial catch yeah yeah and you're like oh it's probably fine it's fine yeah and like I didn't have anything else going on I didn't feel anything weird it was just that weird rib pain but when i did google it it said if you've been having odd rib pain it's probably from kidney stones and i was like if i would have just googled it on monday (laughs) on saturday it would have ended up in the er you know but you know what can you do um also let me just say if you have a kidney stone or you have this weird rib pain or i guess i could explain i had these doctors who were like they'd be like I think maybe you have a kidney stone and then they'd be like does it hurt when I do this and they'd like slam into my back three times with their fist and luckily for me my pain wasn't in my kidneys anymore it had moved on to Mm. that tube so mine was like deep in between like where your ribs and your hip bone meet not meet but like that spare area of meat there it was like deep in there and so I was like no no it doesn't hurt in my back which I'm grateful for because that means I would have received at least 12 punches straight to the (laughs) kidney while it hurt Um, but then he was like the doctor was like oh so it hurts here and like jabbed me in the side and i was like <gasps> like yeah that's you got it like it I was so bad and this was still in the time like i had no pain meds like i was like dying and he's like poke i was like sir if you don't back up <laughs> off me like it's about to get real um and so if you do have a kidney stone you have all the, these pains and you go to the hospital ask for toradol because toradol is this medication um that is just like super high powered so they gave me morphine first it worked for two minutes like i felt it flush and like if you've ever had morphine in your body like you feel it kind of Mm -hmm. and i felt it and it took me from what i now know is a level 10 pain it took me from a 10 to an 8 
which is not good. Not really. But enough for me to breathe, which I was like finally and thinking like, oh, it'll get better as time goes on. I'll be fine. Um, yeah, within two and a half minutes, um, it was right back up. And I was like throwing up again, like loudly and violently to the point of like my my hallway neighbors were like closing their doors because it was like that bad. I, I felt so bad. But I'm like, I'm so, I can't do anything about it, you know. So then they came in and gave me Dilaudid, which is like higher powered morphine. Mm-hmm. Also... Did nothing for me. Did less for me than the morphine did. And I was panicking, thinking, these are two of the strongest painkillers. And they did nothing. I'm going to die right here in this bed right now. Like, I was so panicking and just couldn't breathe and doing all this. And then, in that moment, the RN came in with Toradol. And it is a steroid-filled, super-powerful Tylenol, basically. And when I was given that, within two minutes, I could have done cartwheels. I could have done I could have done anything. I went from Linda Blair to Serafina in less than like ten minutes, basically. It was wild. It was a breath of fresh air, literally, which was helpful because I didn't feel like I could breathe for two hours prior to that moment. And at that time it felt like my lungs had finally clocked in again. She had PTO and she was using them and now she finally came home. Uh, it was it was so bad. Um, I've basically been a walking pharmacy since then, uh, carrying around a paper bag they gave me with six different medications in. I'm like, I, it's just wild. Um, and everyone I've talked to about this, because I mean, the convo always goes to, how did people deal with this before modern medicine? I'm carrying around a bag of six medications. Mm -hmm. Most of them, I did Google, most of them have only been in pharmaceutical use for, like, the last 60 years. And I'm telling you, like, Toradol literally saved me in that moment. I don't know what I would have done without it, and it's not that old. So I'm like, what happened? So as Serafina does, we're going back in history for a little bit, and, like, let's let's just learn together. Let's figure it out. Um, Because I would have given up. I'm telling you, I would have given up. In that moment, I would have been like, I'm done. This is it. There was no fight left in me. So I was like, how did people back in ye old days of yore live? When they don't even have air conditioning. They don't even have air conditioning. They don't even have, like, uh, like, oh, your ribs hurt? Do some cocaine about it. Like, that (laughs) wouldn't have helped me in that moment, you know? Um, maybe opium, some straight up opium would have done the trick. I don't think so though. Cause it's kind of like, it's like, it's kind of the same idea as morphine. So like, nay, it still <laughs> did nothing for me. So, um, in 1901, an archeologist E. Smith actually found what was then called a bladder stone. They were called kidney stones. They're called bladder stones. Um, from five, th- from a 5,000 year old mummy in Egypt. Like, that's like it was how in the long. Mummy? Yes. That's how long. Uh, treatments for stones were mentioned in ancient Egyptian medical writings from 1500 BC. Uh, vegetarian diet, a urethral singe of medicated oh. milk, clarified butter, and alkalis were treatment recommendations for stone sufferers in ancient India. When these treatments failed, surgery was used. So, in ancient Greeks, who settled down the basis of philosophy and science, like we talked before, did the first remarkable observation and documentations concerning urinary stone disease. 
Hippocrates, our good old friend and bud, our buddy, described diseases of the kidneys and defined symptoms of bladder stones. In his famous Oath of Medical Ethics for Physicians, he underlines, I will not cut for the stone, but will leave this to be done by practitioners of this work. At this time, lithemy was practiced with only perennial incisions by special lithemios, lithemius, and Hippocrates adamantly stated that wounds of the bladder were lethal. So, you're in a hard time anyway, going through all this pain, and now they're like, all right, we're going to cut you open, but, like, if we nick your bladder, dude, it's over. Yeah. But there's also no other way for us to do that. Yeah. Bro, old-timey surgery is, like, horrifying. Yeah. No, thank you. Uh, This admonition to physicians about a very risky procedure was to be held for centuries. Like, that's it. That's all they had. Uh, The only possible definitive treatment was up until the early 1800s. The first surgery was indeed uh, lithomy, or cutting the stone. Dr. Savalli's 1835 paper in a comparative account of this old mode of surgical removal through the perennial route in comparison with the new lithotropy by a transurethral instrument... Uh, and then it wasn't until 1970 when they started the external shockwave treatment they do now. 1970! Oh my god. There is a lot of history from almost all cultures uh, that we could get into because it's all basically the same thing. Surgery was the only option until medicine really came into play. If you were rich, you could afford pain meds. If you weren't, good luck to you. Hopefully the ale does something if you can afford that. Which I guess is still kind of similar to today, except now we have a different, more sinister, at times, healthcare system. But I do digress on that. Uh, So there's my tale. Take care of your body a little, and it'll hopefully take care of you. Um, be grateful for modern medicine, even when it bites us in the ass sometimes. Um, and if you get weird rib pains every day for a week, <laughs> maybe like tell someone about tell that. somebody like, look like into an it. adult, a doctor. Stay as hydrated as possible and don't eat a fucking beet dog. Like I don't know what to tell you. So now that we've gone through that, let's move into our actual topic, um, which is also medical history related. So I hope you are ready for more of the same. Recently, my spouse and I got into the conversation about different blood types because our neighbor had shared that when she was pregnant with her son, he had a different blood type than her. And you have to get a shot to make sure everyone's okay. Did you know this? No. Yeah. Isn't that really interesting? Um, I'll go into it a little bit later about why that is. But when she told me that, I was like, you know what? I do remember that because I had a different blood type than my mom. And actually... Um, sometimes that can be, you know how a lot of babies have jaundice? Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's related, like different blood types. But yeah, they have a shot for it now, but that's only very recently. It's very interesting. And so, of course, knowing that sent us into a deep spiral. And then we realized that we didn't know what blood types we were. Do you know what blood type you are? It's in my wallet because I have a Hawksworth donation card. Oh, there you go. It's O something. I'm one of the O's. Oh, you're one of the O's? Yeah. Yeah, so is Dave. And we decided... That we were going to go and take a test. So Amazon sells them for like $7. uh, And they're pretty easy to complete and you find out instantly. So it's pretty cool. I'll actually um, throw a link in the description or in the show notes. So that way if you guys want to do it, uh, you're more than welcome to. Because I thought it was pretty cool. But it did send me down a rabbit hole of when did they figure out like where the different blood types came from. 
um, and what that meant for the body. Like, do different blood types do different things? And also, is Hippocrates involved in this again? Like, he always is. He always shows up, man. Yeah, and let me tell you, in this time, he's not here. Um, What's actually crazier, when I found this out, it did shock me to the core. We didn't find out that blood types were a thing until 1901. That's so recent. 1901. Oh, my God. Only a little over 100 years. That's, ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Mm-hmm. You heard me correctly, 1901. They didn't figure out why some blood transfusions were deadly until 1901. They would just give you a bag of blood and hope it didn't kill you. Oh, my God. Yeah, and um, we're just going to have to take a moment of silence to process that. Okay, so in 1901, Carl Landsteiner at the University of Vienna discovered that when he took samples of red blood cells and serum from his staff, he could demonstrate that the serum of some people aglinated the red cells of others. So let me break that down. (laughs) Serum is the liquid that's left over when the red blood cells and the clotting elements have been removed from your plasma. Right? It's just like the liquid that's left over. Uh, It's the fluid that's obtained when whole blood clots, as it will do spontaneously when it contacts a surface such as a glass or plastic, and aglinated means clumps together. Okay. So if you've ever watched Dexter or, like, anything where they, like, drop blood on, like, the glass um, slides, Mm -hmm. and, like, there's, like, the blood, but then there's, like, liquid all around it, and you're like, wait a second, why is it wet? That's serum. Okay. Um, So he took this serum from one staff member and added it to the red blood cells of another. And if it was different, it clumped together. And if it was similar, it stayed a liquid. And our Amazon tests were the same way. It was so interesting. It had four little circles that had different serums on them, right? Like synthetic serums. And whichever one your blood aglinated on was your blood type. And it's pretty wild to see because it's like... You go from, like, having, like, a liquid dot to basically, like... Do you remember that, like, shattered nail art? That yes. was, like, a thing when we were, like, freshmen in high school? It, like, just completely, like, shatters and becomes, like, little dots everywhere. It's so cool. So, Dr. Landsteiner... Or Landsteiner, I'm sorry. He's... It's from Vienna, which means I am not pronouncing it the way I should be. So, apologies to that man. Uh, he did more tests and more studies and found out that there were three blood types that he could find at this time. Type A type B, and type C, which later turned into type O, or Zephro in German, Um, and type AB was discovered a year later, because it's way less common. And what we know now is that the gene that determines human ABO blood type is located on chromosome 9, and is therefore a different combination of, I think it's pronounced alleles, so I'm going to... Alleles? Alleles. Um, that are inherited from parents that determines which glycoproteins, which are antigens, are found on a person's blood cells. And thereby, their ABO blood type alleles means one of two or more DNA sequences occurring at a particular gene locus. In antigens, as I mentioned earlier, is the substance that causes your immune system to produce antibodies against it. Right? So... I know that this is real medical wordly around here. We're truly learning, and I will try to break it down as much as I can. Um, but yeah, so your antigens are basically the thing that doesn't recognize the substance and is like trying to fight it off. And like that's a part of your blood type, which I think is really cool. There's a bunch of theories 
about where these different blood types came from because like we're all human so like why would we all have different blood types like what's the scenario there there's three hypotheses hypothesis does that come from hippocrates no there's no way we'll find out <laughs> i at this point I i'm willing to bet like anything that even sounds like him i'm is, yeah it's yeah. him he's here he's a part of this um so these three hypotheses the first being that the human blood groups were very old genetic indicators which have evolved during several million years Based on the primary racist hypothesis, it was thought that in the three major races of human blood groups, A in Europe, B in Asian, and finally O in South America, have been emerged and gradually due to the migration and mixing of the races, um, and that's how it became the present situation. Also, I hate the sentence mixing of the races. There's yeah, something about it that I just hate. But we know that in each continent, the isolated populations are seen having completely different blood groups. For example, there's a relatively high prevalence of blood group O in Siberian inhabitants. And also this blood group is very common in some areas of Switzerland. So it's not, it's very interesting. I don't know if I rock with this theory because you're telling me they left out Africa on this major continent of its own people. Racism in sciences, specifically medical sciences, is so deep and so mm -hmm. prevalent, and we lose so much data this way. So I'm ready to move on to this next theory. I don't think it's correct. But it was the first one they went with because back in 1901 in Vienna, shit was a little, a little different, you know? Yeah. Um, so the next hypothesis is the emergence of all the blood groups A and B and their subgroups are resulted from successive mutations from a basic and common blood group, which is the O group. And they have been branched over millions of years. Based on these theories, the old races have O blood group, such as the indigenous of South America or Eskimos, that among them, the frequency of the O blood group is between 75 to 100 percent. So you're looking at like these isolated indigenous cultures. They're looking at these numbers that are we have mostly this like that is not which makes sense when you anyway, we'll get to it. Sorry, <laughs> bring it in. Okay, so while in most recent ethnic groups, A and B blood groups are the most dominant, right? So in our last hypothesis, the first blood group had been AB blood group, which gradually and over time due to genetic mutations has resulted in A and B and finally O blood groups. Based on this theory, perhaps a few million years ago, all people would have had type O blood, which is more resistant against many infectious diseases. Hmm. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I do roll with the last two theories. The whole reason I got into blood types was because of a baby and a mother having different blood types. So when you get your chromosomes from your parents and for almost all of time until very recently, if you had a different blood type other than your baby, it was a bad time. You were sick. Your kid would get sick. Your there was deaths like from moms and babies. Your babies weren't gonna make it. Mm -hmm. So to me, it makes sense that these isolated groups would have had all the same blood type, and then once you started leaving those groups because travel became more readily available, your genes are gonna they're gonna be different obviously and then all of a sudden your kid's gonna have a different blood type than you because you know like evolution and travel didn't inter didn't have intersections it's not a thing you know what i mm -hmm. mean until 
very recently, which is cool that we live in a time like that, but it was pretty deadly to the human race for like a little bit. <laughs> it still kind of is it's sometimes. Still, it still very much is. The most common type of blood type incompatibility is RH disease, also known as the RH incompatibility. The RH factor is a protein on the covering of red blood cells. If the RH factor protein is present, the person is RH positive. If the RH factor protein isn't present, the person is then RH negative. When the mother's RH factor is negative and the baby's is positive, it can make the mother's immune system um, attack the baby's red blood cells as foreign. Oh. Yeah, like that's how bad it is. So, like, that's where it's, like, if I'm A positive and you're A negative, we might have the same blood type, but, like, our kid could not, and, like, it, I my body would kill it. Bro, I swear, every time I hear something about pregnancy... It's I'm, wild. It's, like, ugh. I actually, on TikTok, again, hello, I tend to stay in, like, very isolated groups on TikTok where, like, someone will make one and someone will, like, reply to that person and I get it within, like, three or whatever. Yeah. But there's this theory that the uterus is not made to protect the baby, but to protect the mother. <gasps> Isn't that an insane thing to think about? I love Because that. babies steal your the calcium from your it's bones. It's literally a freaking... A parasite. A parasite, yeah. yeah. So, like, there's this whole new medical theory that your uterus is there to protect you, not, not your baby. baby. Which we've always been doing the opposite. Mind blown. Yeah, isn't that insane? Especially when you think about this kind of stuff. Yeah. Your blood is literally trying to protect you from a foreign invader. Yeah. It's so wild. And this is all new sciences. For centuries, it was just another thing that added to the list of reasons for being pregnant was really for the fucking birds. Mm -hmm. Truthfully. And people are confused on why all of a sudden there's like 8 billion people on the planet. Like, sister, you were lucky to take your first breath, let alone live a month, let alone survive... A day, a month, a week. Survival of the fittest sucks when you're an infant. You ain't fit for anything, mostly. <laughs> you ain't fighting, really. You ain't fighting. So let's go back to those RH blood types. That was found out about 25 years later, after blood types. So almost 100 years to the date. Less than 100 years. In like four that. years, it'll be 100 years. Fucking, that's insane to me. <sighs> Hippocrates really missed the mark on that one. As previously stated, it is a protein factor that covers your red blood cells. And if your blood type's positive, then you have the RH protein. And if it's negative, you don't. Isn't that interesting? And also weird that we're not telling these things. Um, although RH positive is the most common blood type, having an RH negative type doesn't uh, indicate illness or it doesn't usually affect your health in any way. It just is what it is. You either have it or you don't. Isn't that crazy? Insane. So, of course, then I go to, what about blood donation? Who can receive blood? Who can't? And that's actually really interesting. So, since we just talked about the RH factor, it is important to determine in blood donations and transfusions, kind of like I've talked before. A person with the RH positive factor will not make anti-RH antibodies. Those with the RH negative factor will produce the antibodies. So... It's like coding. It's like very it like really is. it's so cool. Um, therefore, someone with Rh positive blood can both receive Rh positive and Rh negative infusion. So you, if you have blood type A, you can take A plus or A negative. Not the other way around. If you have Rh negative blood, you can only receive Rh negative blood. But it does go deeper than that as well, of course. So group B can donate red blood cells to Bs and ABs. Group A can donate red blood cells to A's and A, B's. 
Group O can donate red blood cells to anybody. It's a universal donor. And then you have to have the Rh negative factor on that. So if you're A positive, you can donate A positive or AB positive mm. and, and so on and so forth. If you're AB positive, you can take donations from any type. But if you're AB negative, you can only take them from the negatives of any type. So okay. if you have AB positive blood, baby, you are living the dream, <laughs> basically. And if you have OH negative blood, please think about donating. Honestly, that's the blood of the gods. It can go to anybody. And um, if you have blood, I know only some of you do, my oddlings. Please think about donating seriously. If you're okay with medical stuff and needles, we have a blood shortage right now in the country. It's kind of crazy. Oh, yeah, that's why they're calling me all the time. Yeah. My... yeah I, I've donated a couple times, but fun fact about me, oddlings, is I can't see my own blood. I was going to ask you if you wanted to talk about that or not, because I didn't know if you wanted to publicly state a weakness. I'm fine. Okay, because yeah. if someone wanted to, like, attack you, all they had to do was, like, show you your own All blood. they have to do is cut me anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, a uh, fun fact about me, oddlings, is I can't see my own blood, but it is under very specific circumstances. It is so fucking stupid. Serafina and I have talked about this because of how dumb it is. I have many tattoos. I can get a tattoo for six hours and be covered in blood and plasma and be perfectly <laughs> fine, but if I get a paper cut... <laughs> and I see the blood well up, your girl's gonna black out. It's the dumbest shit. Yeah. My vision just turns itself off. I literally cut myself in the shower with a razor the other day oh, no. and tried to get out of the bathtub and my partner had to help me because oh, I was gosh. blacking out because the blood was welling up. Yeah, it's so dumb. So if you're like me, <laughs> yeah. I, co I totally get it. I try to donate blood when I can, but it's donating hard. blood is one of the things where I will likely black out when I do it yeah. and I just feel so sick. So it's like... I have to, yeah, yeah, it's rough, it's rough. Yeah, I wish don't, I could. don't stress yourself out if, if you're I one of those. To. Yeah, don't do that. It's rough. But yes, do I say that she's uh, an evolutionary problem? Yeah, I tell her that all the time. <laughs> and I am. But to be fair, I'm a rock factory, so like, we're both, you know, trying <laughs> our best. over here. So, um, here's what I also found out. There are also other subgroups, a bunch of them. And I know you're thinking, Serafina, there's been too many things put in my face. I'm just trying to do the dishes. <laughs> um, I get it. I won't list them all off. But I do think that there's some things that are really interesting. Like, there's a one, two, and a three category for all blood types. I did not know that. Yeah, isn't that wild? Like, A1, A2, A3, A1 negative, A, A, or A negative one, A negative two. A1 steak sauce blood? A1 steak sauce blood, baby. I'm telling you. Um, and then there's rare types of each one of those as well. It's so crazy. They aren't all categorized the same. So, like, rare blood for A is, like, A4, A5, A6, AZ, AX. What? A and ABO2. And B has the no numerical, but then they also have BW, BX, BY, BM. It's crazy. And then... O types are even weirder because they have rare cases where they have O Y Y O H H O X X and O Bombay, as in B O M B A Y, O Bombay blood type. Isn't that something to think about? You think that they would just stick with the alphabet or the numbers, but for some reason they decided to get all algebra up in here. <laughs> like, just throw it all, put it in a bowl, throw it all together, see alphabet what sticks. Soup blood. Alphabet soup blood, baby. O Bombay. So. Those subgroups are rare, but they do exist. And if you're wondering, what does the population look like in percentages? I was wondering that too. O positive is the most common at 38%. After that, it's A positive coming in at 
then after that it dips the most common thing after that is only nine percent and that's b positive then o negative is seven percent a negative is six percent a b positive is three percent b negative is two percent and lastly a b negative is one percent that's how uncommon 1%. it is. One percent of the, I mean, eight wow. billion. One percent of eight billion people still like but a still shit ton of people. So low. Well, especially when you have the O positive is thirty eight percent. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely crazy how how rare it is. I also wondered if there was any differences for us in our everyday life. I remember back in the day there was a blood type diet, um, but I did look into it, and that was just some diet culture bullshit. Sounds about which right. we will conquer diet culture, I think, in an episode because it's just wild out there um and there's no scientific proof that what you eat could really benefit your blood type there may be some science that if you have the abo gene which we talked about earlier that's if you have the a b or a b blood types you could be more susceptible to a heart disease if you live in a highly polluted area that's so like isn't that so interesting yeah but it's because you don't have um that uh, the antigens that's going to protect you from like p- that part in your immune system from highly huh. positive uh, polluted areas. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Um, it's pretty specific, but I think it's good to know. The ABO gene is also connected with brain function and memory loss. People who have blood types AB and AB are up to 82% more likely to develop cognition and memory problems, which can lead to dementia, of course, compared to those with type O. So, shout out to our blood type O homies. You can take this info to the grave. Most of us will forget it. Um, But Penn Medicine, as in the University of Pennsylvania, Penn Medicine says your blood type is just one factor that contributes to your risk for certain health conditions. While your blood type may put you at a higher risk for certain conditions, nothing's definitive. Being aware of how your blood type may impact your health is a good start, but it's also just as important to see your physicians for regular checkups and maintain a healthy lifestyle, says Dr. Guggenheim. Did I include that just to say Guggenheim? Yes, because I love that word. Um, But as always, it's go to the doctor, try to be healthy, you know, rich people things. Um, So if you don't know what your blood type is, I will throw that link in there, like I said before. It's pretty cool to do the test. Um, You do have to, like, poke yourself with, like, a... Like, you know the things that they do at, like, the ends of your finger? Ah, uh, yeah. Which I fucking hate. I cannot it's stand. so terrible. Um, but it's pretty easy to do. It's worth knowing also just for, like, emergency yeah. case scenarios. Yeah. And um, I'm A negative, which is not that common. I think it's kind of, like, 6% of the population. I'm, like, one of, like, the lower percentages which is pretty interesting uh, my partner has the the most common one so like we're at the opposite ends of the spectrum i think it's interesting but it sucks because he's rh positive and i'm not so i can't take his blood right. but uh he can take mine little asshole um which i also can't take blood um from like a lot of other people like i basically have like four percent of the population can like help me out and that that's sounds about, about right honestly for you i mean truthfully if anyone's <laughs> gonna have the uncommon it's medical problem it's gonna be me baby um but what you can do i'm lucky enough to be whatever the opposite of anemic is i lose more blood than some people weigh in a year i swear like sometimes it's just it's just happening so like luckily for me I, you know, I don't have that problem, but I will be donating now uh, that I know what those numbers look like in mm-hmm. front of me because my other A negative friends, gotta my homies, I got to help out the homies. Um, so I know that you had already talked about 
uh, not being able to see your own blood, but those that have a fear of blood, it's called hemophobia. And um, to be fair, it's 2022 and being hemophobic, gross, get it together. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it is a real fear. I have pondered on that because it seems like an evolutionary problem. Just like I call you an evolutionary wonder. It's just my own blood, okay? Which I is can so see strange. the blood of my enemies. I can watch bloody horror movies. Yeah. We're living it. It's just mine. My brain does not like that my blood is outside of my body. And you know what? Fair. See, but like if my blood is outside of my own body without my consent, that like my adrenaline rushes because now I'm ready to fight you. And you're like, nah, just kill me, dog. So like it's never <laughs> happened in like a scenario where I'm fighting someone. It's always I hope been you're like, not actively fighting people. Yeah, it doesn't happen very regularly, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. But it only ha- like if it's like a paper cut or like I'm getting my blood drawn. Like anytime I go to the doctor and they're doing like blood draw to do tests or whatever, yeah. they have to lay me down. That's wild. They have to lay me down or I will pass out. What's really funny, that means, like, if I wanted to attack you, all I have to do is cut you because now you're bleeding and blind. You don't even have to try. (laughs) What's what's worse is, like, my vision just goes out, too. Like, I can still hear things. Yeah, I I just can't see. It's so useless. I don't understand. We gotta start training you to fight in the dark. Yeah. Like, echolocation. Like, just blindfold me. (laughs) She's the new daredevil. Oh, God. Um, So, we do live in a world where maybe you can go on without seeing blood now, which is kind of nice. Like, it's not very common. Mm -hmm. Um, But back in the day when food isn't being processed for you, it would have been a really bad time to have a fear of blood. Oh, yeah. Like, imagine having, like, people used to raise their own meat constantly, like, having chickens in your backyard and, like, killing them. Like, but there's blood. And if you're afraid of it, like, that definitely seems like it would have been an issue. Um, rich people fear. Rich people fear, literally. <laughs> well, let's talk about poor people fear now. Um, when I was facing financial difficulty, I used to donate plasma all the time, like a lot of us have. And I'm grateful that I didn't have a fear of blood because that cash got me from point A to point B at some points. And I feel bad for those who can't do that. Yeah. Um, but I also feel like I didn't really understand what was happening. So I figured I'd explain. Um, if you want to know what it means to donate plasma, plasma is collected through an automated process that separates plasma from other blood components, then safely and comfortably returns your red blood cells and platelets back to you so you don't have to go through the process of making all of those again. We talked about serum earlier and the difference between the two. So serum is the liquid that remains after the blood has clotted. Plasma is the liquid that remains when clotting is prevented with the addition of an anticoagulant. And this plasma is used to help in emergency situations to help people stop bleeding. Okay. That's why they collect it so often. And I did find this nifty thing on the Red Cross website where it shows you the makeup of your blood by blood type. And I will link that below if you're a visual learner when it comes to stuff like this. But basically, group A blood type has A antigen on the red blood cells and B antigen on the plasma. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. B blood group has B antigen on the red blood cells and A antigen on the plasma. Makes sense. AB group has both AB antigen on the blood type, but no antigen in the plasma. Okay. And O group has AB antigen on the plasma, but no antigens on the blood cell, the red blood cells. Hmm. Isn't that so wild? It's so cool. I truly can't believe that we've only known about blood types for a little more than a hundred years. I often tend to ponder what we will find out next. Like, what's up with DMT being in our brain? All of a sudden, you know, like now they're using ketamine to fix depression. Like what's going to be the next big thing? It's so interesting that we know so little, but feel like we know so much. Mm -hmm. I guess that's why we have the pod. 
Because we love learning about these topics. True. And I do wonder where it will take us next. Stay out, Arcadia.